All righty. Well, good morning. So if you don't know me, I am Chapin Jones. I am the Sealands Grove Church Planner, and it's just my joy to be able to open up God's Word with you this morning. Uh, so we're going to continue our series in the Gospel of Mark. So if you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. It's about three-fourths of the way through your Bible. You'll see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. We're in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. And while you're flipping there, I want to tell you a story of a high school that's about 45 minutes from where I grew up. There's this high school called T.L. Hanna High School. It's in Anderson, South Carolina. And from this high school emerges one of the most unlikely stories, but yet one of the most captivating ones that you may have ever will hear. It was 1964, and it was at the start of the school year at T.L. Hanna. And football season has just begun. It's in August. Friday Night Lights, the big show, the big dance. And the football team was gathering around for practice that day. There was this coach, Coach Jones. I'm not related to him. But Coach Jones noticed at practice there was a man out in the distance, a young man, just watching. Well, the coach didn't think much about it. Well, then the next practice, sure enough, the young man showed up. Again, just watching the players and the coach's practice. And as the coach was watching this young man in the distance, he noticed that this young man always had a small transistor radio. He noticed after coming to these practices that this guy eventually started mimicking the players. He started mimicking the coaches. But every time Coach Jones wanted to introduce himself to this young man, he would walk to him. The young man would scoot away with his little radio. This mysterious young man, his name was Radio. Or his real name was James Robert Kennedy. He was 18 years old, and he got his nickname Radio, well, because of that small little transistor radio that he walked around town with all the time. Uh, Radio, he was born with an undiagnosed disability. It kept him from reading and writing, and he can actually barely speak. He lived with his single mom who worked two jobs. So pretty much, Radio was up to defend for himself growing up. Well, one day, Coach Jones grabbed a Coke and a hamburger. He's like, I figured this will do the trick. And sure enough, it did. He handed Radio some food. And then from that moment on, there will be a relationship that will never be broken. Right away, Coach Jones and the football team welcome Radio in as family. Right away. So much so, a few years later, Coach Jones was able to work it out with T.L. Hanna High School to allow the now 24-year-old to enroll as a junior in the high school. This relationship kept growing over the years. James Robert Kennedy, he used to be known as this kid who would walk around Anderson, South Carolina with a transistor radio, but now he is known as one of the most popular people in Anderson history. This was a man, he rallied a community together. He gave pep talks. If he knew that you were having somewhat of a bad day, 
James Robert Kennedy would give you a hug. That's just who he was. In 2019, radio, he passed away. The community realized that radio offered him, or offered the community much more than they ever gave him. He, he created a spark in the community that is still being talked about today in Anderson. Growing up 45 minutes from the high school, I remember a high school football game where we as Woodruff High School honored radio at halftime. And he has like a special jersey in our school. I mean, this guy made an impact throughout the community. As we think about the story of radio, James Robert Kennedy, it is literally one of the most unlikely stories. A man who walked around Anderson, South Carolina with a radio to his ears, had become part of a football team, became part of a family, and part of the community. So when we think about relationships, when we think about our own personal relationships, if we just pause for just a moment, we really begin to think how unlikely most of our relationships really are. I mean, let's just take our local church for an example. I mean, if we look around the room, we have retired. We have kids who are in the nursery or in the kids space. We have singles. We have married couples. We have people from all over the country. The most unlikely relationships. But here's the thing. We are all united under one commonality. The hope of Jesus Christ. The grace of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly, this unlikely nature of relationships is exactly what we'll see in our text this morning. In our passage, we'll see a relationship that that really doesn't make sense. A relationship with a king and a tax collector. A king and the outcast. A relationship with a king and the sinner's. So our main point that we will see this morning is this. The sinner becomes a friend by the scandalous grace of Jesus Christ. The scandalous grace of Jesus Christ. So church, as we do on Sunday mornings, I just want to invite you. Will you stand with me as we read our text together this morning? And we stand when we read to honor, for this is the word of the Lord. This is God speaking to us this morning. Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. Church, hear the word of the Lord. Verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Aphelius, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus heard it. He said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Church, this is the word of the Lord, and all God's people say, praise be to God. You may be seated. 
So we've been going through the Mark, uh, the Gospel of Mark. And really what Mark early on in this gospel is really trying to show us something. Mark has been trying to show us who is the king that we have been waiting for. Well, Mark tells us that king is King Jesus. And just like any king, a king must have some kind of authority. And what we see is that Jesus truly has unmatched authority. Jesus, so far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen him cast out demons. He has authority over demons. We've seen Jesus have authority over sickness, as we saw last time in the Gospel of Mark, where he heals the paralytic. We saw that Jesus has authority to, uh, when he speaks and when he teaches. But last sermon, in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, Jesus displayed an authority that really stands out. If you remember, there was this paralytic. They removed the roof, they lowered him down, and then this paralytic is now laying in front of Jesus. And if you remember what Jesus says to him, it says in Mark 2, verse 5, My son, your sins are forgiven. Jesus displayed that not only does he have authority in all these ways, but he also has authority to forgive sin. Now, now this really started to turn some heads because what we know is that only God has authority to forgive sins. So, so what we see is that either Jesus is some blasphemer that deserves death or Jesus is truly who he says he is, the son of God. So now all eyes are on Jesus. So last sermon, we saw Jesus has the authority to forgive sins. But now Mark, in the most strategic way, brings us to this text right next to each other. Because what we'll see in our text is, well, who are the ones that qualify? Who are the ones that receive this forgiveness? So Jesus has the authority to forgive, but who can then be forgiven? So let's look at that this morning. Point one, grace for the sinner. Grace for the sinner. Look at verse 13 with me. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. All right, so let's just get a little bit of the scene here. This has been a pretty common pattern for Jesus and his ministry. He will enter into a town. A crowd will gather around Jesus. Jesus will then withdraw himself, but eventually the crowd will find him again. But Mark wants to be very clear what Jesus' mission is. Again, at the end of verse 13, he wants us to focus that Jesus, he was teaching them. Now, yes, Jesus did a lot of amazing miracles. He he did a lot of amazing uh, things. But what Mark wants us to hone in on is that when when a crowd is present, when people are coming, Jesus is teaching. This isn't the first time that Mark makes this emphasis. If you just kind of go back to Mark chapter 1 verse 38. Again, the same same message. Jesus is saying, all right, it's time to go. It's time to start going to these next towns. Why? So that I may preach there also. Jesus was about his preaching. He was about his teaching. 
So let's just pause here. So Jesus, he's in Capernaum, he's teaching, and he's preaching this message. What, what is he teaching? Well, well, what we know in Mark 1.15, that the message is that the kingdom of God is here. Jesus is preaching a message of repentance. Hey, wake up, turn from your sins, and faith. That is his message. And he's inviting all these people in Capernaum. Like, turn from your sins. Come to faith. Put your faith in me. Now, now you would think, if if Jesus was literally physically standing here teaching that, that, you know, it would be easy to assume, like, man, I would really follow that. If I could physically hear and see Jesus, then that's the ticket. My faith will be this big. But that's not the case. Just a little side note here. Church, although we physically don't see Jesus here speaking to us, we still can hear Jesus speak. See, here in Capernaum, they were hearing Jesus speak through their ears. He was physically there. But in God's grace, he's allowed us to see Jesus speak with our eyes. As we open up the words from Genesis to Revelation, all of these words is pointing from Jesus speaking to us, revealing his truth, revealing this message of repentance and faith. So like if we ever wrestle like man, if only if I could just see or hear Jesus. Let me just encourage you to just think, man, we got the word of God. That's living and active. Where each page is ready for our own growth and understanding of who Christ is. Uh, There's this Puritan, John Owen, that that says it this way. When we're trying to think like listening and, and speaking to Jesus. Or hearing Jesus speak. John Owen says this. To behold the glory of Christ is not a work of fancy imagination. It's not conversing with a framed piece of art, but a faith exercise on the divine scriptures. Jesus himself gives us this direction in John 5, 39, where he says, search the scriptures for that is our which testifies of me. So I think the simple question that we should ask here is like one Are we going to listen to Jesus? Are we listening to Jesus? Are we listening to what he has called us to do in his words? Because here here in our text, we see the crowds have come, but the most unlikely person was the one who was listening to Jesus' message, to his teaching. Because look at verse 14. And as he passed by Jesus... He saw Levi, the son of Aphelius, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, now we read that verse, and we don't really get the full shocking nature of this interaction with Jesus and his calling to Levi. This interaction with Jesus and this man, Levi, this tax collector, is just flat out scandalous. I mean, to be fair, tax collectors in this time period, they were pretty bad dudes. 
They, they were bad people. Essentially, tax collectors, they were thieves. They were kind of like a mafia-like organization. Levi here, later on he will be Matthew, but Levi here, he was a Jew. And he's working for the Romans, the Roman government. So what Levi would do, he would collect taxes from his own people and then continue to feed the beast of the Romans. But why was Levi so hated? I mean, first off, no one likes feeding money to the IRS. You know, we're in tax season. We're all dreading it, right? Nobody likes doing that. Nobody likes paying money to the government. But we got to. But with Levi, he's fueling this oppressive government like the Roman Empire. But above all, what he would do, he will collect taxes, but he will say, hey, you owe this much which was the incorrect amount, he'll charge more and he'll skim, the, skim off the top, pocket the rest for profit. So essentially what Levi's doing, as he is increasing in this lavish lifestyle, his very own people are becoming poor. Think of it this way. So the PA Turnpike, I don't know if you've been on the Turnpike before. If you hop on the Turnpike, or say around Philly area, and you take the whole turnpike out towards Pittsburgh, it will charge you a hefty $118 to drive the turnpike. A hefty $118. Say you, say you get to the end of the turnpike, you get to the toll booth, and you're expecting, like, look, I already have to owe the state of Pennsylvania $118. You're already not loving it. But the person at the toll booth says this, you need to give me $200. If you, if you want to keep driving, you need to give me $200. If not, we're taking your car. Right? Like, we're already furious. We're paying $118. But now we're going to have to pay $200. Essentially, this is what Levi was doing to his own people. One historian says this about tax collectors. A Jew, which that's Levi, who collected taxes, was disqualified as a judge or a witness in court. He was expelled from the synagogue, and he caused disgrace to his family. The touch of a tax collector rendered a house unclean. Now, now, where else? Where else do you remember that we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark where the touch of someone would make you unclean? If we go back to Mark 1.40, we see that the touch of the leper will make an individual unclean. See, see, no self-respecting person, especially a self-respecting teacher or rabbi like Jesus, would ever touch or come close to a tax collector. But just like the leper... Jesus, he goes beyond cultural walls. He goes beyond those barriers. And in the most scandalous ways, he touches and interacts with the tax collector. And he tells Levi in the most simplest way, Levi, follow me. See, church, there's something just so powerful happening in this moment. Essentially what what Jesus is doing to Levi, this tax collector, he's just extending out grace to him. I mean, this guy, this tax collector, Levi, I mean, he was a bad guy. 
He stole from his own people. I would say in our minds, as we think about God's grace, and sometimes it may be hard to wrap our minds around it, that it's easy to think God giving grace to what we will say a decently good person. No, say someone gives to charities. They help feed the hungry. They help clothe those who are naked. You know, that they're good citizens. Okay, God, I can see why you would give someone grace. You know, they're a good person. But here's the question. Can God give grace to a murderer? Can, can God's Give grace to someone who lies and cheats? Can, can God give grace to a thief? Uh, there's this, uh, this guy, Jeffrey Dahmer. I don't think he needs an introduction. He was an awful man. Killed many people. It is said, before he passed away, as he met with this priest that he repented of his sins and put his life in Christ. Now, now look, we, can't, we don't know if that was genuine or not, but, but is God's grace great enough for him? It's, it's easy, church. It's easy to still say, you know what? Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell, and that's it. But that's what makes grace so scandalous. That what makes grace so deep and so vast and so amazing. When we begin to really pull back the layers of it all scripturally, there's not a single good person in this room. We have all sinned against this holy, perfect, triune God that deserves death and deserves hell. But God's grace is great. It's scandalous. It goes beyond what our mind can even fathom so that we may have life in him. We, we hear the saying, grace is a gift from God. Yes and amen, but we need to take it one step further. Grace is a gift of God, but church, the gift is God himself. The reason why we can have life is because Christ first off gave up his life. That is the gift of grace, church. So when Jesus tells Levi to follow me, we just see this beautiful picture of grace unravel. Jesus, he didn't leave the glories of heaven to make some kind of all-star team. Right now, what we know from Mark is that his team is made up of some fishermen and this tax collector. But doesn't that make grace look so much better? That even the people that society has pushed away, that God says, no, come near. That is grace. That grace is for you and for me. And notice there at the end of verse 14, and Levi, he rose and followed him. Without thought, Levi dropped everything to follow Jesus. His life of extortion, thievery, and stealing from his very own people, he dropped it all. What we see here is that we got Levi's sin and the weight and the guilt that Levi has from all the years of thievery coming head on with a clash of God's grace. And what we see is God's grace 
is greater than the sins of the sinner. Levi, the wealth, the power, that lavish life that he was building was nothing. He left everything behind. He wanted forgiveness. He wanted Jesus. Levi has this amazing transformation. And I think that's the question for us. Are are we still holding on to something? Like, you know what? I really want this life with Christ. I really want this grace that you're talking about. But yet this is still so good. Or have you just fully submitted yourself and let go and just surrendered yourself to the open arms of Christ to follow him? That transformation happens. Because that's exactly what we see. Let's look at our second point, point two. A friend to the sinner. A friend to the sinner. Verse 15. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. I I think this is just so cool. Levi has this immediate heart transformation. This was a man that was about himself, his own gain. And notice the very first thing he wants to do. He wants to have a party. He wants to have a party. And he wants Jesus there. Notice the little detail of who are the ones invited to this party. There in verse 15. Other sinners and tax collectors. I mean, that's really the only people Levi could invite. Were the other, those people that society has pushed away. See, Levi saw Christ there by the Sea of Galilee. He saw that Jesus offered a message and was preaching a message of repentance and faith. But yet in that message is a message of forgiveness, a message of transformation. So so when we see, like, why would Levi want to invite these people, sinners and tax collectors, to his house? It's because Levi knows that they too can be forgiven. The same sins that Levi was fighting with of being a tax collector. He knew his friends were probably doing the same things. And guess what? There is forgiveness in Christ. So we got this scene. You got the disciples. You got got the sinners and the outcasts all together in this one house, having dinner together, having this party, this banquet and, and in our mind, we can be like, oh man, that definitely is a party I don't want to go to. That seems like a pretty weird party. But notice Jesus' posture. I think it's easy to overlook this, but I think Mark is trying to make a point here. Look at verse 15. And as Jesus, or as he, Jesus, reclined at the table in his house... Jesus didn't feel awkward. Jesus didn't feel like he was on pins and needles as he was at this party with other sinners and tax collectors. You know, Mark goes on to say that Jesus was reclining at the table. 
You know, say, say you just had a big banquet, you know, Thanksgiving or Christmas or New Year. You know, you had your elbow on the table, your feet spread out. You're relaxed. You're enjoying yourself. Jesus is just reclining at the table. There's no pressure. He's in this comfortable position with like the most uncomfortable people of society. One commentator I thought said this, I thought it was pretty interesting. He says this, that Jesus reclining at the table really shows that Jesus was the one to host this party. In Luke 7.34, we get a, a little bit clearer picture of who these people are. The Son of Man has come, eating and drinking. And you say, look at him. He's a glutton and a drunkard. He's a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now, in Luke, we see that Jesus, like these people at the party were drunkards. They were considered gluttons. The tax collectors, the, the outcasts. But that didn't matter. In one simple phrase, Jesus is a friend to sinners. He's a friend. Now, now let's be clear. In this text, we don't see anything about Jesus affirming their sin. We don't see anything in this text about Jesus participating in this sin or in their sins, but yet he was a friend to them. So why is Jesus hanging out with such a bad company of people? Because Jesus knew the heart of his message. Although how despicable these people are, and all these, these outcasts, that that same message of repentance and faith and forgiveness is just as much for them as the other people around them. Jesus himself also, as he did Levi, would extend out his grace to them. So, so how does this practically play out? We, we look at this, and I just want to pause here for a moment. Hopefully it's not too much of a tangent, but I think there's something to be learned here for us to think as a church. Because if Jesus was a friend of sinners, church, shouldn't we be as well? Shouldn't we? See, see, being a friend, you don't need a church event, some kind of church program. But what we see here in this text, I think is beautiful, is just the simple act of hospitality. To open up a home, to invite people who may not know Christ in, so that they may see Christ through you. Because ultimately what we recognize as we are hospitable people and as we be a hospitable church that we can be friends to sinners because first we realize that we too are sinners. But the difference is is that we have a hope and a forgiveness that we want other people to know about. The thing about hospitality is that it's a call to all. You can be retired and be hospitable. You can be single and be hospitable. You can have a family with kids and be hospitable. You can be uh, just married and hospitable. I just want to bring out two quick pieces of application here. Uh, just first to the singles. 
I, I, I think if you're a single here, it could be difficult to maybe find, like, what's my role in the local church? You know, I don't have a family. You know, what's my role? How do I play a piece in this? First, let me encourage you. You have a gift from God that can use to build up this body. So one, praise the Lord for that gifting. But also hospitality. Take advantage of your more you know, flexible schedule. I mean, I know you're busy, but you can have spontaneity in your life. I mean, you're able to just invite people right from church over or after work, meet up. So as a single, I just want to encourage you, like what are a way that you can just keep growing in hospitality because the Lord has placed you in a way that you can. Doesn't necessarily mean that you have your own place or you might still live with your parents or have a roommate. You can still be hospitable. It's not about the location, but it's about your heart of wanting to engage with people, engage them with Christ. And then just secondly, as we think about this idea of hospitalities as families, what a beautiful way to shepherd a family through hospitality. As you bring the family together, just ask the family, like, who can we serve in our neighborhood? Who who can we bring dinner to? Invite the kids into that conversation. Allow them to see you care and be hospitable so that that's what they know when they do, when they too are older. Hospitality is such a beautiful way. It is a vehicle for evangelism and discipleship. And guess what, church? It works. Hospitality with the hope of of gospel-centered hospitality, it works. Because look at the end of verse 15. Jesus, there's this party, there's other sinners and tax collectors, but then look, for there were many who followed him. Many would follow Jesus. So church, as we look at this passage, we here are the gluttons. We're the drunkards, we're the sinners, we're the tax collectors. But here's the thing. Jesus has sent out an invitation to each one of us, stamped by the blood that he shed on the cross, so that we are now invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. That great, fe- that great uh, feast, that great banquet in glory one day. As Revelation 19, 7, 9 says, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Through Christ's death on the cross, church, the perfect Lamb was sacrificed so that you too can be invited to that marriage supper. We sing a song here at Sunbury City Church called Jesus, Thank You. I just want to read the chorus to you. It says, your blood has washed away my sins. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, thank you. He's a friend. And he's invited us at his table. Because ultimately what we see is that he is a redeemer for the sinners. A redeemer for the sinners. That's our third and final point this morning. Look at verse 16 with me. 
And here we are in verse 16. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was teaching or he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now, this is not our first interaction that we've seen with Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes. Clearly, these religious leaders are not thrilled that Jesus is hanging out with these people. These religious leaders, they couldn't even just stomach the idea of giving one second of their time with these sinners. That these ungodly, filthy people, how dare Jesus eat with them? And the thought that Jesus as this rabbi really made them wonder. So we got the disciples here. And the Pharisees noticed that they didn't want to confront Jesus. <laughs> they just want to go to his, you know, his followers first. And notice, they asked his followers, his disciples, hey, why does Jesus do that? Why, why does Jesus eat with these sinners? First off, church, let's just make it clear. What an arrogant question to ask, right? The amount of pride that just crept through the Pharisees here. Essentially, what the Pharisees are coming to this conclusion that, hey, why is Jesus eating with these sinners? They concluded that they themselves weren't sinners. But yet they were missing it, missing it big. And I just love it. Jesus hears this. He hears this this questioning that they were throwing to his disciples. And then verse 17, one of the most beautiful responses. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus here is using this rhetorical question. We see this throughout his ministry as he's interacting with these scribes and Pharisees. And he uses the phrase or this question, uh, those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick. This is what Jesus is saying, that that the point of a doctor, like, like what's the point of a doctor if he's only going to associate himself with healthy people? Imagine you have a fever, you need fluids, and you get to Evan's ER, and the reception's like, I need a bed right, way, right now, right away. I'm in deep emergency. And the receptionist just looks at you and says, hey, sorry. The doctor's only seen healthy people today. Like, it's laughable. And that's what Jesus is saying. And as we read earlier in Exodus, that it is the Lord who is our spiritual healer. It is the Lord who is our spiritual healer. Jesus is telling the Pharisees, look, these people are sinners. They're sick. They need me. They need the spiritual doctor and I'm the one who has the authority to forgive them. And then Jesus in the more pointed way at the very end of verse 17 
will just flat out tell the scribes, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus, in that comment, is really showing that the mission of Jesus is vastly different than the mission of the Pharisees. See, the scribes and Pharisees' mission was to try to achieve some kind of moral transformation. And Jesus' mission is a mission of redemption. These Pharisees, they have this mission of moral transformation. And here's the thing self, about self-righteousness. Is that self-righteousness will crush you. Self-righteousness is an enemy of God. When we begin to think that we're better. When we begin to think that, that I don't need to talk to him or her. I, I've made it. That is an enemy to God and to his church. We must flee from that heart. We must flee from the heart thinking that we have made it. Because what Jesus is saying, look, I didn't come for those who think that they've made it. I've come for the ones who know that they need me. The sinners. As we saw with Levi, he immediately dropped everything. To follow Christ. You get this idea that as Levi was sitting in that tax booth. And as Jesus taught throughout Capernaum. That he heard about this message. The message of Jesus. The liberation of forgiveness. And Levi said, that's what I want. I want Jesus. I want him and what he can give me. Church, as we kind of end our time together here in the Word, what this tax is or this text is really trying to help us see is that one, do you see your need of the grace of Jesus Christ? God's grace is greater, church. It's greater. It's for you. And all what Jesus is inviting you is to drop everything and follow him. Turn from the sins that you have. Put your faith in Christ and it's there. It's there for you. But then secondly, for us as Christians and us here, church. Who is that friend? Who's that friend that society may have begun to push away, that outcast, and say, no, come in. Let me tell you about Jesus. Will we get it perfect? No. Will we make mistakes? Absolutely. But may we never forget the scandalous grace of Jesus Christ. For when Jesus was upon that cross, he was tried as a criminal and he was hung as a criminal. But what we all know is that he was the son of God who gave up his life so that we may have it. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for this text. Just the scandalous way that 
that you call us. Father, we, we are so far gone. We, we are just fully depraved. There's nothing good in us. But despite that, God, you, you have seen that you wanted to bring us back in. That you saw that you wanted us to, us to be redeemed. So, Father, we pray that this morning we just give glory to Christ. For it is through his death on the cross that, that we may be saved and be brought back in so that we know now that one day, one glorious day when that marriage supper begins, that for all those who have put their faith in Christ will have a spot with you, seated at your table. And God, I pray that will be true for each one of us in this room. Father, may this morning continue to magnify who you are. In your son's name we pray. Amen.